And that is because I want to change gears just a little bit this morning in our discussion of the kingdom of God. And I want to spend a couple weeks talking more directly about the king of the kingdom, about the person who is actually the king. If you are a born-again Christian, and we talked about this at the very beginning of this series, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you are a member, you are a citizen, actually, of the kingdom of God. And that means, by definition, that you have not only a Savior, but you have a King. You have someone who exercises authority in your life. You have someone who calls the shots, or at least is supposed to be calling the shots. And and what I want to think about today is I want you to consider the possibility, as we begin here, that the more you come to know your King, the more you know about King Jesus, the more you come to know Him, the more you will find yourself becoming like him that there is a dynamic by which a person's character tends to be influenced not only by the kinds of people they hang around with and the groups of people that they hang around with but by the leaders who exercise authority in their lives now the business world understands this i was reading an article in a leadership blog of some kind this past week and it was written to business leaders ceos people like that it was assuring them that their organizations, all the way down the chain of management, even down to the entry-level employees, would sooner or later begin to reflect their character. So if you're the CEO of a company and you are harsh and demanding with your people, then they will eventually learn to become harsh and demanding with one another. If you are optimistic and enthusiastic, they will be more optimistic and enthusiastic about their work. If you are a person of honesty and integrity, This will rub off on those people that you are leading. If you cheat, if you cut corners, if you're ethically challenged, sooner or later the company that you lead and its people are going to become like you. And it's not too hard to see how this can happen, not just in a company, but also in a family, on a sports team, in a church, and other groups of people that that, and where people have to lead one another. But it also happens at the kingdom level. It happens at the big kingdom level. In the Old Testament, when you read through the the historical books, you know, Kings and Chronicles, places like that, you'll find out that the story of the nation of Israel and later the nations of Israel and Judah, those stories are really told by telling the stories of their kings and whether the kings were good or bad. And the king, the good king or the bad king, would very often really rub off on his people. Multiple times it talks about how a king would lead Israel into sin or into idolatry, or a king would lead Judah into sin, the bad kings. The good kings also had an impact. They often sparked revivals, especially in Judah, which tended to have the better kings on average. In fact, there was one good king I was remember reading about recently, King Jehoshaphat. He actually sent his priests out into the towns and cities of Judah to teach people God's Word in kind of an Old Testament discipleship program. The character of the king very often filters down to the people that he leads. Well, it stands to reason then that if Jesus is indeed our king, then if we indeed begin to really know him, know what he's like, know about him, and know him personally as we follow him, that's going to mean that we become more like him will begin to take on the character of our king. And of course, Jesus is very interested in this happening to us. And so today and next week, actually, we're going to try to answer two questions. And they're really very basic questions of identity and character. First of all, who exactly is this king? Who is this person who is our king? And then what is he like? What kind of a king is he? And answering these questions, it can really be life-changing for us 
Not just because we're going to become like our king if we know him better, but that's one of the big reasons. And what I want to do as, as we look at this topic is I want to look at three titles for Jesus. One of them we're going to look at this week because uh, it's the most frequent one, and two of them we're going to look at next week. Uh, three titles for Jesus, and these three titles all occur actually within a couple of verses of each other in the passage we're going to look at today, which is at the end of John chapter 1. So turn to John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 43. In the end of John chapter 1, what's happening is Jesus is going around and he is calling his first disciples to himself. And he's already called Peter and Andrew, and now in verse 43, he's going to call Philip and Nathaniel. John 1, 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that last verse is going to sound really, really weird. Unless you know a little bit about a particular story from the Old Testament and, and what is going on here. What I am pretty sure is happening here is that when Philip goes looking for Nathanael and he finds him under that fig tree, at that time, Nathanael is thinking about something. In fact, he's even meditating on something, and he, he may even be doing what today we would call having a quiet time or having his devotional time. And I can almost guarantee you that Nathanael at that moment was reflecting on something from the life of Jacob, who was a pretty famous character way back in the book of Genesis. And if you know anything about Jacob, we can't tell his whole story today, but, but if you know anything about Jacob's character, you know that Jacob was a schemer. He was a deceiver. But when God finally got a hold of Jacob, he actually changed his name to Israel. And so when Jesus says to Nathanael, here comes a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, I think that really freaks out Nathanael right there. Even more so when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip found you. And then after Nathanael really freaks out and he calls, he calls Jesus the Son of God and the King of Israel, and those are the two titles we're going to look at next week, by the way. Jesus says, hey, Nathanael, this is paraphrasing, if that freaks you out, wait until you see the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And I don't believe that Jesus is referring to a literal event here that Nathanael is going to see with his own eyes. I believe that Jesus is referring to a realization that Nathanael is going to have about who Jesus is. You see, maybe the most famous story from the life of Jacob is when he falls asleep one night, when he's on the run from his brother Esau, he puts his head down on a rock, and he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder, or probably more accurately translated a staircase, reaching from heaven down to earth, and there are angels going up and down on this staircase. In fact, we often call it what? Jacob's 
ladder. We know that. In fact, people often refer to their quest for spiritual enlightenment or their quest to become more spiritual or to know God better or to grow as a believer or whatever. They'll, they will call it climbing Jacob's ladder, which is one of the worst and most harmful analogies the devil has ever come up with because it leads millions of people into the idea that we can reach heaven by our own efforts, which is not the case. In fact, Jacob isn't climbing anything in this story. He's actually asleep the whole time. It is God who bridges the gap between himself and sinful people, not the other way around. And when Jesus says to Nathanael what he says in verse 51, what he's saying is, in effect, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the staircase. I am the bridge that God has made between heaven and earth. And in saying this, the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He does the same thing a couple chapters later with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he says, No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now this name, which is by far Jesus' favorite name for himself, it's what he uses almost every time he refers to himself, is often misunderstood. We tend to think that, that because we know Jesus is the Son of God, we tend to think that Son of God is a reference to Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's God, whereas Son of Man is a reference to his humanity. But that's actually quite inaccurate. The title Son of Man in the Old Testament actually comes from a very famous verse in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. When the kingdoms of the world and we actually saw something of this a few weeks ago, but the kingdoms of the world are defeated by the power of God. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, they're all defeated by God, and in their place, the new king over all of them is identified as one like a son of man. And this person, it says, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed." A few verses later, the kingdom of this son of man person is also referred to as the kingdom of the most high God. So the son of man, the son of man, for any Jew who understands the Old Testament well, carries more than just a whiff of deity. And anyone calling himself the son of man was at least flirting with the idea of not just being a man, but also being God. And in fact, on the night of his trial, the night before Jesus died, he was on trial, and the high priest asked Jesus, who are you, basically? And Jesus answers by quoting that verse from Daniel about the Son of Man, and he's immediately charged with blasphemy because they know that he's claiming to be God. The only other person in the Old Testament who was referred to regularly as the Son of Man, strangely enough, is the prophet Ezekiel. God always calls Ezekiel the Son of Man, but I find this kind of interesting in that Ezekiel was not a normal prophet who just spoke and wrote things down like most prophets did. He did that stuff. But in addition, God was always using Ezekiel in different ways. God was always making Ezekiel into an object lesson or, or a word picture. One time Ezekiel had to, had to lie down on his left side for part of the day for 390 days in a row and then lie down on his right side for 40 days in a row and God said, you're doing this to bear the punishment of Israel and Judah. Another time Ezekiel had to shave off all his hair burn part of it, tie some of it onto his robe, and let the rest blow away. Again, representing the people of Judah. So God was always using Ezekiel, he, and he would always call him son of man when he did this. He was always using him as a representative, as a picture, as kind of a stand-in for all of the people. 
And I don't want to press this too far because Ezekiel is never called the Son of Man. But to me, there's at least a hint here that the term Son of Man, as it's understood, can mean representative man. It can mean every man. It can be the person that stands in for everybody else. And of course, you can't get away from what the idea means when we just look at the words, Son of Man. What that actually means is it clearly refers to a human being, right? Jesus came to this earth from heaven, but he also had a human genealogy. He was a descendant of flesh and blood men and women. And so he is a son of man. So putting all this together, our king, who calls himself the son of man almost every time he refers to himself, is quite a complicated character. He is a divine figure. he's, he's, He's God. But he also has somehow become a full-fledged human being. There's a hint that he may even think of himself as a kind of representative human being, and he claims to be a bridge in some sense in which God has descended to earth. The more I study this, the more I think that if you had to use another title that would be synonymous with the term son of man, I would say it would be the incarnate one. The incarnate one. I'll explain that in a minute. But the the one who has always been He's always been, but he hasn't always been a man, yet now he has become one. Of course, we celebrate this great truth at Christmas time, and we call it the what? The incarnation. The incarnation, God becoming a man. But what actually happened to God the Son when he became a man? One of the questions we ask is, what did our king give up when he became a man? And the short answer to that is, he really didn't give up much of anything other than his glory, for a period of time. And what I mean by that is that when Jesus became a man, he did not give up any of his godhood. Jesus did not not become any less God when he became a man. In fact, what he really did was he added something. He added humanity. As the song says that we sing a lot, in Christ alone who took on flesh. When Jesus became a man, it wasn't so much a matter of taking something off or losing something. He was putting something on. He was putting on humanity in addition to his deity. Now, what did that do to him? What did that do to Jesus? One of the hardest things to do if you're a husband is to empathize with your wife when she is pregnant because if you ever try to go up to your wife during those nine months and you say to her, honey, I know just what you're going through, that is going to get you killed. There was a a craze going on for a while in which men whose wives were pregnant would, in an effort to bond with and understand their wives, purchase a thing that was called an empathy belly. Um, Anybody ever see one of these? I went out online to see if they still make these things, and they do. $800. It uses, quote, a rib belt and the strategic positioning of various weighted components to simulate many of the physical and emotional effects of being pregnant. Emotional effects. By the way, I spared you the picture. There was a picture of this, and the guy was wearing the empathy belt, and he's smiling away like, I'm wearing an empathy belly. And I'm thinking, dude, I don't think you're getting the emotional effects of being pregnant. But you get the idea. By putting something on it is possible to sort of simulate a a burden. But you need to know that what Jesus did was not just a mere simulation. He wasn't putting on some kind of man belly. Jesus actually put on not just a disguise, 
not just the shell, not just the look of a human being, but he actually put on humanity itself inside and out, top to bottom. Not just, the, not just the physical side of us, but the emotional side and even the spiritual side as well. Jesus had to resort to prayer to talk to his Father, just like we do. He had to read his Bible to learn about spiritual things, just like we do. And so without losing any of his, of his divinity, he became 100% fully Flesh and blood, human. Okay. End of theology lesson. Right? And I'm not apologizing for that because we need to understand these truths because we are surrounded by pseudo-Christian cults and other teachers who call themselves Christians who will twist these facts and distort the gospel. But I want to get down to earth now and I want to ask, okay, if, if that's who our king is and that's what he did, then why did he do it? And what does that tell us about him? and what it means to follow him and for him to be our king. And to do that, I want to go to another passage. So turn backwards in your Bible with me to Luke and find chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, Jesus is on the way to his coronation. It is coming up on Palm Sunday. In fact, it may even be Palm Sunday when this happens. And, and Jesus is making his way through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And, and while he's on this trip, he stops to meet with a man named Zacchaeus. So this story starts in Luke 19, verse 1. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner." And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what kind of a king would do this kind of thing? This is very unkinglike, if you think about it, isn't it? Here's the great king, the greatest of all kings, literally on the way to his coronation. And he goes out of his way and he calls a timeout to the whole parade in order to meet the need of one man. And that man, by the way, is a traitor. In fact, he's the chief of the traitors. Pretty much everybody hates him because he's a tax collector and he's working for the Romans. But Jesus knows that Zacchaeus is not too far gone. It's like he knows that you and I are not too far gone. And notice how he approaches Zacchaeus. He doesn't preach a sermon on how bad it is to betray your people and to cheat other people and to take advantage of them and to take too much money. No, instead he says to Zacchaeus, Hey, Zacchaeus, how about you and me throw a party? You can be the host and I'll be the guest. Now Jesus has every right to really come down on Zacchaeus, but instead he approaches him not from above, but from alongside. 
And he even goes into this guy's house, which no self-respecting rabbi would ever have done, let alone the king of the nation whom Zacchaeus has been betraying. This is like Winston Churchill eating at the home of a known Nazi collaborator. What kind of a king does this? The answer is one who's seeking. One who's seeking. The Son of Man, Jesus says, came to seek and to save that which was lost. And sometimes we skip ahead to the saving because we know how important it is, and we forget about the seeking, but in order to save us, he had to find us. And the incarnation, Jesus becoming the Son of Man, is not only about saving, first it's about God seeking us out. You see, God had been trying to get our attention, Hebrews tells us this, for thousands of years through prophets and kings and commandments and in all sorts of other ways. But in becoming the Son of Man, God is no longer thundering at us from heaven's PA system. He has decided to come down and go house by house and tree by tree and find the ones who are in need of His forgiveness and his healing. And that means becoming one of us and taking on our pain and our weaknesses and our temptations and our struggles and empathizing with what we go through so that he can win our trust by coming alongside of us. God lowered himself to that. I came across an article this week in Christianity Today. It was entitled, God's Answer to Black Rage. It was written by an African-American guy who had grown up in the segregated South and he had gotten called all sorts of horrible names by white people and he had seen his own parents degraded and belittled. And he says over time he began to feel a smoldering rage building up inside of him and a desire to violently strike back. He says until God met him at his point of need. He writes this, how does God respond to our cries? Not with facile approach uh, appeals to free will, that some people will abuse it and do evil things like slavery. Nor does he respond as he did to Job merely by revealing his sovereign glory and silencing our questions and complaints. What is God's first answer to black suffering and to the wider human suffering and the rage that comes with it? It is to enter it alongside us as friend and redeemer. The answer to black rage is the calming words of the Word made flesh. The incarnation that comes all the way down, even unto death, has been enough for us to say, yes, God, we trust you. End of quote. We have a king that we can trust. Trust enough to obey. Trust enough to follow him even into the hard places that he calls us to go into because that king knows by experience what it's like to be us. And he will climb any tree and he will overturn any rock and he will look into any room of your house to find you so whatever dark corner of your life contains the most pain, the most anger, the most doubt, he will find you there. Because he's looking for you, not with a helicopter or a spotlight, but with a flashlight. And he's going room to room. This king of yours knows what it's like to lose a loved one to sickness and death. He knows what it's like 
to be misunderstood and abused by people because of ignorance or fear or just plain hatred. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to lose his earthly father at a young age and have a bunch of younger siblings to worry about. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry and even homeless. He knows what it's like to have your friends let you down or even betray you. He knows what it's like to experience excruciating physical pain and want to give up. He knows what it's like to put himself out there to serve people and have them respond with a total lack of thankfulness and appreciation. He also knows what it's like to battle the temptations of the flesh. He became 100% human, which means he had to fight the battle with lust. He had to fight the battle with anger. The battle with greed. Think about it. Jesus could make money out of thin air if he wanted to. The battle with impatience. The battle with fear. The battle with despair and hopelessness. And given who he was, he had to have had to fight the battle with pride and the desire to please men rather than God. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way in which we are tempted today, yet without sin. And so one thing we could say is that the only, the only human experience that Jesus doesn't know about firsthand is sin. But that's not exactly true, is it? Because Jesus actually got up close and personal with sin. Our sin. Every kind of sin. 2 Corinthians tells us not that Jesus committed sin because he didn't, but it said he actually became sin for us. This happened the day after our king experienced firsthand the very human pain of unanswered prayer. Because he went to his father and he said, please take this cup from me. And he got no. His request was denied. And he submitted to the father's will. And so the king gave his life for his subjects. You and me. But I don't want to forget about the question we asked at the beginning. What does it mean for us then as followers of this king? How does it affect us? If we're indeed supposed to be becoming more like him, how does that come into play with his being the son of man who comes to seek us out and bridge the gap between people and God? The Christian author Catherine Marshall tells a story about how her father, who was a pastor, once went to go visit a man who had recently started visiting his church. And the guy worked at a coal mine, so um, the pastor went to visit the guy at the coal mine where he worked. But as he extended his hand to greet the man, the man looked at him and said, Sorry, Reverend, but I can't shake your hand. Mine's just too grimy. So the pastor thought for a minute and he got an idea. He reached down to the dirty floor. He smeared coal dust all over his hands. And he said, Okay, how about now? That's a very simple and probably kind of superficial example of a Christian being what we would today call incarnational. Now, I have to be careful with that word, right? You'll hear it a lot, but you need to know this. Only Jesus can really be incarnated because we're not God, he is. So he's the only one who truly becomes incarnational. But in this case, incarnational ministry, the way we refer to it, simply means this. It means putting ourselves in the place of others in order to meet people where they are putting ourselves in the place of others in order to meet people where they are. This often involves being willing to get our hands dirty to reach someone for Jesus. 
It always means coming alongside someone in order to minister Christ to them in some way rather than looking down on them from above. You see, it's so easy for we believe, us believers, we look down on people who don't know Jesus. Or maybe they do know him, but they're, they're struggling in some obvious way where we don't struggle. And so without even thinking about it, we kind of roll our eyes and we say, oh, how could this person be this fill in the blank or this stubborn? How could they be this thoughtless? How could they be this clueless about the things of God? How could they be this immature and stupid about the way they're dealing with this thing? And so we're tempted just to wash our hands of these people. Which, of course, is just what Jesus could have done with us in our rebellion and in our total cluelessness. But he didn't. Instead, he entered into our weakness and he was patient with our issues. And he calls the people of the kingdom to be the same way, willing to ask people the follow-up questions and take the time to answer them or get the answers. Willing to patiently engage with their complaints, to go into their homes, to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to take the risk to get involved in their lives, and at times to even share our own struggles. In short, to recognize someone else's personhood and enter together with them into our common humanity. And in our fleshly pride and impatience, we can see these things sometimes as a waste of our time or being beneath us. But you know what? Our king did not see it that way. So let me ask you this. This morning, is there someone that Jesus is calling you to come alongside of? Not to preach at, not to toss some helpful advice to, but to get your hands a little bit dirty, just like Jesus did with so many of the broken, messed up people that he knew. This does not mean that you don't share the gospel with them because if they don't know Jesus, only the gospel can wake up their hearts in the power of the Spirit. But what it does mean is that you approach them from alongside, not from above, and not from a safe distance. And then lastly, I don't know if you have a pain of some kind this morning that you're kind of maybe even hiding from God. Maybe you just think that your problem is somehow beneath him or it slipped through the cracks with him or it's not worthy of his interest or maybe he just doesn't care that much or maybe you're too ashamed to think about what it is. Listen, God is not up there with some kind of a button that he's going to press on his telephone to decide whether or not to take your call. He is here seeking you and waiting for you to bring this thing to him. What more does he have to do so that you will trust him enough to pour out your heart to him in honest confession? This is a king who does indeed want to rule your life, yes. But first, he will meet you where you are. He is the son of man. He is the God who took on humanity in order to seek you out. And there is no limit to his compassion, his understanding, or his forgiveness. So we're going to close this morning with another couple of songs. I guess this would be kind of our garden of prayer time. And, and uh, I, I want if, if you need to come and meet God up here this morning for whatever reason, I invite you to do that. Otherwise, you can just kind of worship where you are. But, but ask yourself those questions. What are you hiding from God's flashlight? And who does God want you to come alongside of this week? Let's pray.